Reaper Man by Terry Pratchett. Read by Nigel Planer. The Morris dance is common to all inhabited worlds in the multiverse. It is danced under blue skies to celebrate the quickening of the soil and under bare stars because it's springtime and with any luck the carbon dioxide will unfreeze again. The imperative is felt by deep sea beings who have never seen the sun and urban humans whose only connection with the cycles of nature is that their Volvo once ran over a sheep. It is danced innocently by raggedy-bearded young mathematicians to an inexpert accordion rendering of Mrs. Widgery's Lodger and ruthlessly by such as the ninja Morris men of New Ark who can do strange and terrible things with a simple handkerchief and a bell. And it is never danced properly. Except on the disc world, which is flat and supported on the backs of four elephants which travel through space on the shell of Great Artuin, the world turtle. And even there, only in one place have they got it right. It's a small village, high in the Ramtop Mountains, where the big and simple secret is handed down across the generations. There, the men dance on the first day of spring, backwards and forwards, bells tied under their knees, white shirts flapping. People come and watch. There's an ox roast afterwards, and it's generally considered a nice day out for all the family. But that isn't the secret. The secret is the other dance. And that won't happen for a while yet. There is a ticking such as might be made by a clock. And indeed in the sky there is a clock. And the ticking of freshly minted seconds flows out from it. At least it looks like a clock. But it is in fact exactly the opposite of a clock. And the biggest hand goes around just once. There is a plane under a dim sky. It is covered with gentle rolling curves that might remind you of something else if you saw it from a long way away. And if you did see it from a long way away, you'd be very glad that you were, in fact, a long way away. Three grey figures floated just above it. Exactly what they were can't be described in normal language. Some people might call them cherubs, although there was nothing rosy-cheeked about them. They might be numbered among those who see to it that gravity operates and that time stays separate from space. Call them auditors. Auditors of reality. They were in conversation without speaking. They didn't need to speak, they just changed reality so that they had spoken. One said, It has never happened before. Can it be done? One said, It will have to be done. There is a personality. Personalities come to an end. Only forces endure. It said this with a certain satisfaction. One said, Besides, there have been irregularities. Where you get personality, you get irregularities. Well-known fact. One said, He has worked inefficiently. One said, No, we can't get him there. One said, That is the point. The word is him. Becoming a personality is inefficient. We don't want it to spread. Supposing gravity developed a personality. Supposing it decided to like people. One said, 
got a crush on them sort of thing. One said, in a voice that would have been even chillier if it was not already at absolute zero, no. One said, sorry, just my little joke. One said, besides, sometimes he wanders about his job. Such speculation is dangerous. One said, no argument there. One said, then we are agreed. One who seemed to have been thinking about something said, just one moment. Did you not just use the singular pronoun my? Not developing a personality, are you? One said guiltily, who, us? One said, where there is personality, there is discord. One said, yes, yes, very true. One said, all right, but watch it in future. One said, then we are agreed. They looked up at the face of Azrael, outlined against the sky. In fact, it was the sky. Azrael nodded slowly. One said, very well, where is this place? One said, it is the disc world. It rides through space on the back of a giant turtle. One said, oh, one of that sort. I hate them. One said, you're doing it again. You said I. One said, no, no, I didn't. I never said I. Oh, bugger. It burst into flame and burned in the same way that a small cloud of vapour burns, quickly and with no residual mess. Almost immediately, another one appeared. It was identical in appearance to its vanished sibling. One said, Let that be a lesson. To become a personality is to end. And now, let us go. Azrael watched them skim away. It is hard to fathom the thoughts of a creature so big that in real space his length would be measured only in terms of the speed of light. But he turned his enormous bulk, and with eyes that stars could be lost in, sought among the myriad worlds for a flat one. On the back of a turtle, the disc world, world and mirror of worlds. It sounded interesting, and in his prison of a billion years, Azrael was bored. And this is the room where the future pours into the past via the pinch of the now. Timers line the walls. Not hourglasses, although they have the same shape. Not egg timers, such as you might buy as a souvenir attached to a small board with the name of the holiday resort of your choice, jauntily inscribed on it by someone with the same sense of style as a jelly donut. It's not even sand in there. It's seconds, endlessly turning the maybe into the was. And every lifetimer has a name on it and the room is full of the soft hissing of people living. Picture the scene. And now, add the sharp clicking of bone on stone getting closer. A dark shape crosses the field of vision and moves up the endless shelves of sibilant glassware. Click, click. Here's a glass with the top bulb nearly empty. Bone fingers rise and reach out. Select. And another. Select and more, many, many more, select, select. It's all in a day's work, or it would be if days existed here. Click, click, as the dark shape moves patiently along the rows, and stops, and hesitates. Because here's a small gold timer, not much bigger than a watch. It wasn't there yesterday, or wouldn't have been if yesterday's existed here. Bony fingers close around it, and hold it up to the light. It's got a name on it in small capital letters. The name is Death. Death put down the timer and then picked it up again. 
The sands of time were already pouring through. He turned it over experimentally just in case. The sand went on pouring, only now it was going upwards. He hadn't really expected anything else. It meant that even if tomorrows could exist here, there weren't going to be any. Not any more. There was a movement in the air behind him. Death turned slowly and addressed the figure that wavered indistinctly in the gloom. Why? it told him. But that is not right. It told him that, no, it was right. Not a muscle moved on Death's face, because he hadn't got any. I shall appeal. It told him he should know that there was no appeal, never any appeal, never any appeal. Death thought about this, and then he said, I have always done my duty as I saw fit. The figure floated closer. It looked vaguely like a grey-robed and hooded monk. It told him, We know. That's why we're letting you keep the horse. The sun was near the horizon. The shortest-lived creatures on the disc were mayflies, which barely make it through twenty-four hours. Two of the oldest zigzagged aimlessly over the waters of a trout stream, discussing history with some younger members of the evening hatching. You don't get the kind of sun now that you used to get, said one of them. You're right there. We had proper sun in the good old hours. It was all yellow, none of this red stuff. It was higher, too. It was, you're right. And nymphs and larvae showed you a bit of respect. They did, they did, said the other mayfly vehemently. I reckon if mayflies these hours behave a bit better, we'd still be having proper sun. The younger mayflies listened politely. I remember, said one of the oldest mayflies, when all this was fields, as far as you could see. The younger mayflies looked around. It still feels, one of them ventured after a polite interval. I remember when it was better fields, said the old mayfly sharply. Yeah, said his colleague, and there was a cow. That's right, you're right, I remember that cow. Stood right over there for, ooh, forty, fifty minutes. It was brown, as I recall. You don't get cows like that these hours. You don't get cows at all. What's a cow? said one of the hatchlings. See, said the oldest mayfly triumphantly. That's modern Ephemeroptera for you. It paused. What were we doing before we were talking about the sun? Zigzagging aimlessly over the water, said one of the young flies. This was a fair bet in any case. No, before that. Um, you were telling us about the great trout. Ah, yes, right, the trout. Well, you see, if you've been a good mayfly, zigzagging up and down properly, taking heed of your elders and betters, yes, and taking heed of your elders and betters, then eventually the great trout, clop, clop. Yes, said one of the younger mayflies. There was no reply. The great trout what? said another mayfly nervously. They looked down at a series of expanding concentric rings on the water. The holy sign, said a mayfly. I remember being told about that, a great circle in the water. Thus shall be the sign of the great trout. The oldest of the young mayflies watched the water thoughtfully. It was beginning to realise that, as the most senior fly present, it now had the privilege of hovering closest to the surface. 
They say, said the mayfly at the top of the zigzagging crowd, that when the great trout comes for you, you go to a land flowing with... flowing with... Mayflies don't eat. It was at a loss. Flowing with water, it finished lamely. I wonder, said the oldest mayfly. It must be really good there, said the youngest. Oh, why? Because no one ever wants to come back. Whereas the oldest things on the disc world were the famous counting pines, which grow right up on the permanent snow line of the high ram-top mountains. The counting pine is one of the few known examples of borrowed evolution. Most species do their own evolving, making it up as they go along, which is the way nature intended. And this is all very natural and organic and in tune with mysterious cycles of the cosmos, which believes that there's nothing like millions of years of really frustrating trial and error to give a species moral fibre, and in some cases, backbone. This is probably fine from the species' point of view, but from the perspective of the actual individuals involved, it can be a real pig, or at least a small pink root-eating reptile that might one day evolve into a real pig. So the counting pines avoided all this by letting other vegetables do their evolving for them. A pine seed coming to rest anywhere on the disc immediately picks up the most effective local genetic code via morphic resonance and grows into whatever best suits the soil and climate, usually doing much better at it than the native trees themselves, which it usually usurps. What makes the counting pines particularly noteworthy, however, is the way they count. Being dimly aware that human beings had learned to tell the age of a tree by counting the rings, the original counting pines decided that this was why humans cut trees down. Overnight, every counting pine readjusted its genetic code to produce, at about eye level on its trunk, in pale letters, its precise age. Within a year, they were felled almost into extinction by the ornamental house number plate industry, and only very few survive in hard-to-reach areas. The six counting pines in this clump were listening to the oldest, whose gnarled trunk declared it to be 31,734 years old. The conversation took 17 years, but has been speeded up. I remember when all this wasn't fields. The pines stared out over a thousand miles of landscape. The sky flickered like a bad special effect from a time travel movie. Snow appeared, stayed for an instant, and melted. What was it then? said the nearest pine. Ice, if you can call it ice. We had proper glaciers in those days, not like the ice you get now, here one season and gone the next. It hung around for ages. What happened to it then? It went. Went where? Where things go. Everything's always rushing off. Wow, that was a sharp one. What was? That winter just then. Call that a winter? When I was a sapling, we had winters. Then the tree vanished. After a shocked pause for a couple of years, one of the clumps said, He just went, just like that. One day he was here, next he was gone. If the other trees had been humans, they would have shuffled their feet. It happens, lad, said one of them carefully. He's been taken to a better place. You can be sure of that. He was a good tree. In this case, three better places. The front gates of numbers 31, 7 and 34 Elm Street 
Ankh-Morpork. The young tree, which was a mere 5,111 years old, said, What sort of better place? We're not sure, said one of the clump. It trembled uneasily in a week-long gale. But we think it involves... Mm, sawdust. Since the trees were unable even to sense any event that took place in less than a day, they never heard the sound of axes. Windle Poons, oldest wizard in the entire faculty of Unseen University, home of magic, wizardry and big dinners, was also going to die. He knew it in a frail and shaky sort of way. Of course, he mused as he wheeled his wheelchair over the flagstones towards his ground-floor study. In a general sort of way, everyone knew they were going to die, even the common people. No one knew where you were before you were born, but when you were born, it wasn't long before you found you'd arrived with your return ticket already punched. But wizards really knew. Not if death involved violence or murder, of course, but if the cause of death was simply a case of running out of life, then, well, you knew. You generally got the premonition in time to return your library books and make sure your best suit was clean and borrow quite large sums of money from your friends. He was 130. It occurred to him that for most of his life he'd been an old man. Didn't seem fair, really. And no one had said anything. He'd mentioned it in the uncommon room last week, and no one had taken the hint. And at lunch today they'd hardly spoken to him. Even his old so-called friends seemed to be avoiding him and he wasn't even trying to borrow money. It was like not having your birthday remembered, only worse. He was going to die all alone, and no one cared. He bumped the door open with the wheel of the chair and fumbled on the table by the door for the tinderbox. That was another thing. Hardly anyone used tinderboxes these days. They bought the big, smelly, yellow matches the alchemists made. Windle disapproved. Fire was important. You shouldn't be able to switch it on just like that. It didn't show any respect. That was people these days, always rushing around and, and fires. Yes, it had been a lot warmer in the old days, too. The kind of fires they had these days didn't warm you up unless you were nearly on top of them. It was something in the wood. It was the wrong sort of wood. Everything was wrong these days, more thin, more fuzzy, no real life in anything. And the days were shorter. Hmm. Something had gone wrong with the days. They were shorter days. Hmm. Every day took an age to go by, which was odd, because days plural went past like a stampede. There weren't many things people wanted a 130-year-old wizard to do, and Windle had got into the habit of arriving at the dining table up to two hours before each meal, simply to pass the time. Endless days going by fast. Didn't make sense. Mm. Mind you, you didn't get the sense now that you used to get in the old days. And they let the university be run by mere boys now. In the old days it had been run by proper wizards, great big men built like barges, the kind of wizards you could look up to. And suddenly they'd all gone off somewhere and Windle was being patronised by these boys who still had some of their own teeth. Like that Ridcully lad. Windle remembered him clearly, thin lad, sticking out ears, never wiped his nose properly, cried for his mother in the dorm on the first night, always up to mischief. Someone had tried to tell Windle that Ridcully was Arch-Chancellor now. Hmm. They must think he was daft. Where was that damned tinderbox? Fingers. You used to get proper fingers in the old days. Someone pulled the covers off a lantern. 
Someone else pushed a drink into his groping hand. Surprise! In the hall of the House of Death is a clock with a pendulum. Like a blade, but with no hands, because in the House of Death there is no time but the present. There was, of course, a present before the present now, but that was also the present. It was just an older one. The pendulum is a blade that would have made Edgar Allan Poe give it all up and start again as a stand-up comedian on the Scampiona casket circuit. It swings with a faint whoom, whoom noise, gently slicing thin rashers of interval from the bacon of eternity. Death stalked past the clock and into the sombre gloom of his study. Albert, his servant, was waiting for him with the towel and dusters. Good morning, master. Death sat down silently in his big chair. Albert draped the towel over the angular shoulders. Another nice day, he said conversationally. Death said nothing. Albert flapped the polishing cloth and pulled back Death's cowl. Albert? Sir? Death pulled out the tiny golden timer. Do you see this? Yes, sir, very nice. Never seen one like that before. Whose is it? Mine. Albert's eyes swivelled sideways. On one corner of Death's desk was a large timer in a black frame. It contained no sand. I thought that one was yours, sir, he said. It was. Now this is a retirement present from Azrael himself. Albert peered at the thing in Death's hand. But the sand, sir, it's pouring. Quite so. But that means, I mean, it means that one day the sand will all be poured, Albert. I know that, sir, but you, I thought time was something that happened to other people, sir, doesn't it? Not to you, sir. By the end of the sentence, Albert's voice was beseeching. Death pulled off the towel and stood up. Come with me. But your death, master, said Albert, running crab-legged after the tall figure as it led the way out into the hall and down the passage to the stable. This isn't some sort of joke, is it? he added hopefully. I am not known for my sense of fun. Well, of course not, no offence meant, but listen, you can't die because you're death. You'd have to happen to yourself. It'd be like that snake that eats its own tail. Nevertheless, I am going to die. There is no appeal. But what will happen to me? Albert said. Terror glittered on his words like flakes of metal on the edge of a knife. There will be a new death. Albert drew himself up. I really don't think I could serve a new master, he said. Then go back into the world. I will give you money. You have been a good servant, Albert. But if I go back... Yes, said Death. You will die. In the warm, horsey gloom of the stable, Death's pale horse looked up from its oats and gave a little whinny of greeting. The horse's name was Binky. He was a real horse. Death had tried fiery steeds and skeletal horses in the past and found them impractical, especially the fiery ones, which tended to set light to their own bedding and stand in the middle of it looking embarrassed. Death took the saddle down from its hook and glanced at Albert, who was suffering a crisis of conscience. Thousands of years before, Albert had opted to serve Death rather than die. He wasn't exactly immortal. Real time was forbidden in Death's realm. 
There was only the ever-changing now, but it went on for a very long time. He had less than two months of real time left. He hoarded his days like bars of gold. I, um, he began, uh, that is, you fear to die? It's not that I don't want, I mean, I've always, it's, it's just that life is, is a habit that's hard to break. Death watched him curiously, as one might watch a beetle that had landed on its back and couldn't turn over. Finally, Albert lapsed into silence. I understand, said Death, unhooking Binky's bridle. But you don't seem worried. You're really going to die? Yes. It will be a great adventure. It will? You're not afraid? I do not know how to be afraid. I could show you if you like. Albert ventured. No, I should like to learn by myself. I shall have experiences at last. Master, if you go, uh, will there be... A new death will arise from the minds of the living, Albert. Oh, Albert looked relieved. You don't happen to know what he'll be like, do you? No. Perhaps I'd better, you know... Clean the place up a bit, get an inventory prepared, that sort of thing. Good idea, said Death, as kindly as possible. When I see the new Death, I shall heartily recommend you. Oh, you'll see him then? Oh, yes, and I must leave now. What, so soon? Certainly, mustn't waste time. Death adjusted the saddle, and then he turned and held the tiny hourglass proudly in front of Albert's hooked nose. See, I have time at last. I have time. Albert backed away nervously. And now that you have it, uh, what are you going to do with it? He said. Death mounted his horse. I am going to spend it. The party was in full swing. The banner with the legend, Good Debye Windle, 130 Glorios Years, was drooping a bit in the heat. Things were getting to the point where there was nothing to drink but the punch, and nothing to eat but the strange yellow dip with the highly suspicious tortillas, and nobody minded. The wizards chatted with the forced jolliness of people who see one another all day and are now seeing one another all evening. In the middle of it all, Windle Poons sat with a huge glass of rum and a funny hat on his head. He was almost in tears. A genuine going-away party, he kept muttering. Haven't had one of them since old Scratcher Hoxole went away. The capital letters fell into place easily. Back in, mm, the year of the intimidating uh, porpoise. Thought everyone had forgotten about him. The librarian looked up the details for us, said the bursar, indicating a large orangutan who was trying to blow into a party squeaker. He also made the banana dip. I hope someone eats it soon. He leaned down. Can I help you to some more potato salad? He said, in the loud, deliberate voice used for talking to imbeciles and old people. Windle cupped a trembling hand to his ear. What? What? More salad, Windle? No, thank you. Another sausage, then? What? Sausage. They give me terrible gas all night, 
said Windle. He considered this for a moment and then took five. Er, uh, shouted the bursar, do you happen to know what time? Eh? What time? Half past nine, said Windle, promptly, if indistinctly. Well, that's nice, said the bursar. It gives you the rest of the evening free. Windle rummaged in the dreadful recesses of his wheelchair, a graveyard for old cushions, dog-eared books, and ancient half-sucked sweets. He flourished a small green-covered book and pushed it into the bursar's hands. The bursar turned it over. Scrawled on the cover were the words, Windle Poons, he's diary, a piece of bacon rind marked today's date. Under things to do, a crabbed hand had written, Die. The bursar couldn't stop himself from turning the page. Yes, under tomorrow's date, things to do get born. His gaze slid sideways to a small table at the side of the room. Despite the fact that the room was quite crowded, there was an area of clear floor around the table, as if it had some kind of personal space that no one was about to invade. There had been special instructions in the going-away ceremony concerning the table. It had to have a black cloth with a few magic sigils embroidered on it. It had a plate containing a selection of the better canapes. It had a glass of wine. After considerable discussion among the wizards, a funny paper hat had been added as well. They all had an expectant look. The bursar took out his watch and flicked open the lid. It was one of the new-fangled pocket watches with hands. They pointed to a quarter past nine. He shook it. A small hatch opened under the twelve, and a very small demon poked its head out and said, Knock it off, governor. I'm peddling as fast as I can. He closed the watch again and looked around desperately. No one else seemed anxious to come too near Windlepoons. The bursar felt it was up to him to make polite conversation. He surveyed possible topics. They all presented problems. Windlepoons helped him out. I'm thinking of coming back as a woman, he said conversationally. The bursar opened and shut his mouth a few times. I'm looking forward to it, Poons went on. I think it might mm, be jolly good fun. The bursar riffled desperately through his limited repertoire of small talk relating to women. He leaned down to Windle's gnarled ear. Isn't there rather a lot of, he struck out aimlessly, uh, washing things and making beds and, and cookery and all that sort of thing? Not in the kind of um, life I have in mind, said Windle firmly. The bursar shut his mouth. The arch-chancellor banged on a table with a spoon. Brothers, he began, when there was something approaching silence. This prompted a loud and ragged chorus of cheering. Um, as you know, we we are here tonight to mark the um, uh, retirement. Nervous laughter, of our old friend and, and colleague Windle Poons. You know, seeing old Windle sitting there tonight puts me in in mind, as as luck would have it, of the story of the cow with three wooden legs. It appears that there was this this cow, and the bursar let his mind wander. He knew the story. The Arch-Chancellor always mucked up the punchline, and in any case, he had other things on his mind. He kept looking back at the little table. The bursar was a kindly, if nervous, soul, and quite enjoyed his job. Apart from anything else, no other wizard wanted it. Lots of wizards wanted to be Arch-Chancellor, for example, or the head of one of the eight orders of magic. 
but practically no wizards wanted to spend lots of time in an office shuffling bits of paper and doing sums. All the paperwork of the university tended to accumulate in the bursar's office, which meant that he went to bed tired at nights but at least slept soundly and didn't have to check very hard for unexpected scorpions in his nightshirt. Killing off a wizard of a higher grade was a recognised way of getting advancement in the orders. However, the only person likely to want to kill the bursar was someone else who derived a quiet pleasure from columns of numbers all neatly arranged, and people like that don't often go in for murder. At least until the day they suddenly pick up a paper knife and carve their way out through cost accounting and into forensic history. He recalled his childhood long ago in the Ramtop Mountains, he and his sister used to leave a glass of wine and a cake out every Hogswatch night for the Hogfather. Things had been different then. He'd been a lot younger then and hadn't known much, and had probably been a lot happier. For example, he hadn't known that he might one day be a wizard and join other wizards in leaving a glass of wine and a cake and a rather suspect chicken volivant and a paper party hat for someone else. There'd been Hogswatch parties too when he was a little boy, They'd always follow a certain pattern. Just when all the children were nearly sick with excitement, one of the grown-ups would say, archly, I think we're going to have a special visitor. And amazingly, on cue, there'd be a suspicious ringing of hog bells outside the window, and in would come... in would come... The bursar shook his head. Someone's granddad in false whiskers, of course. Some jolly old boy with a sack of toys, stamping the snow off his boots. Someone who gave you something whereas tonight. Of course, old Windle probably felt different about it. After 130 years, death probably had a certain attraction. You probably became quite interested in finding out what happened next. The Arch-Chancellor's convoluted anecdote wound jerkily to its close. The assembled wizards laughed dutifully and then tried to work out the joke. The bursar looked surreptitiously at his watch. It was now 20 minutes past nine. Windle Poons made a speech. It was long and rambling and disjointed and went on about the good old days and he seemed to think that most of the people around him were people who had been, in fact, dead for about 50 years, but that didn't matter because you got into the habit of not listening to old Windle. The bursar couldn't tear his eyes away from his watch. From inside came the squeak of the treadle as the demon patiently pedalled his way towards infinity. Twenty-five minutes past the hour. The bursar wondered how it was supposed to happen. Did you hear, I think we're going to have a very special visitor, hoofbeats outside? Did the door actually open, or did he come through it? Silly question. He was renowned for his ability to get into sealed places, especially into sealed places, if you thought about it logically. Seal yourself in anywhere, and it was only a matter of time. The bursar hoped he'd use the door properly. His nerves were twanging as it was. The conversational level was dropping. Quite a few other wizards, the bursar noticed, were glancing at the door. Windle was at the centre of a very tactfully widening circle. No one was actually avoiding him. It was just that an apparent random Brownian motion was gently moving everyone away. Wizards can see death, and when a wizard dies, death arrives in person to usher him into the beyond. The bursar wondered why this was considered a plus. Don't know what you're all looking at, said Windle cheerfully. The bursar opened his watch. The hatch under the twelve snapped up. Can you knock it off with all this shaking around, squeaked the demon. I keeps on losing count. Sorry, the bursar hissed. It was 9.29. The arch-chancellor stepped forward. Um, bye then, Windle, 
he said, shaking the old man's parchment-like hand. The old place won't seem the same without you. Don't know how we'll manic, said the bursar, thankfully. Good luck in the next life, said the dean. Drop in if you're ever passing and happen to, you know, remember who you've been. Don't be a stranger, do you hear? said the Arch-Chancellor. Windlepoons nodded amiably. He hadn't heard what they were saying. He nodded on general principles. The wizards, as one man, faced the door. The hatch under the twelve snapped up again. Bing, bing, bong, bing, said the demon. Bingly, bingly, bong, bong, bing, bing. What? the bursar jolted. Half past nine, said the demon. The wizards turned to Windlepoons. They looked faintly accusing. What are you all looking at? he said. The second hand on the watch squeaked onwards. How are you feeling? said the dean loudly. Never felt better, said Windle. Is there any more of that um, rum left? The assembled wizards watched him pour a generous measure into his beaker. You want to go easy on that stuff, said the dean nervously. Good health, said Windlepoons. The arch-chancellor drummed his finger on the table. Um, Mr. Poons, he said, are you quite sure? Windle had gone off at a tangent. Any more of these torturillas? Not that I call it proper food, he said. Dipping bits of hard bicky in sludge. What's so special about that? What I could do with right now is one of Mr. Dibbler's famous meat pies. And then he died. The Arch-Chancellor glanced at his fellow wizards and then tiptoed across to the wheelchair and lifted a blue-veined wrist to check the pulse. He shook his head. That's the way I want to go, said the Dean. What, muttering about meat pies? said the bursar. No, late. Um, hold on, hold on, said the Arch-Chancellor. This isn't right, you know. According to tradition, death himself turns up for the death of a wizard. Perhaps he was busy said the bursar hurriedly. That's right, said the dean. Bit of serious flu epidemic over Quirmway, I'm told. Quite a storm last night, too. Lots of shipwrecks, I dare say, said the lecturer in recent runes. And, of course, it's springtime when you get a great many avalanches in the mountains. And plagues. The arch-chancellor stroked his beard thoughtfully. Hmm, he said. Alone of all the creatures in the world, trolls believe that all living things go through time backwards. If the past is visible and the future is hidden, they say, then it means you must be facing the wrong way. Everything alive is going through life back to front. And this is a very interesting idea, considering it was invented by a race who spend most of their time hitting one another on the head with rocks. Whichever way around it is, time is something that living creatures possess. Death galloped down through towering black clouds. And now he had time too. The time of his life. Windle Poons peered into the darkness. Hello, he said. Hello? Um, anyone there? What ho? There was a distant, forlorn soughing, as of wind at the end of a tunnel. Come out, come out, wherever you are, said Windle, his voice trembling with mad cheerfulness. Don't worry, I'm quite looking forward to it, to tell the truth. He clapped his spiritual hands and rubbed them together with forced enthusiasm.
get a move on. Some of us have got new lives to go to, he said. The darkness remained inert. There was no shape, no sound. It was void, without form. The spirit of Windlepoons moved on the face of the darkness. It shook its head. Blow this for a lark, it muttered. This isn't right at all. It hung around for a while, and then, because there didn't seem anything else for it, headed for the only home it had ever known. It was a home he'd occupied for 130 years. It wasn't expecting him back and put up a lot of resistance. You either had to be very determined or very powerful to overcome that sort of thing, but Wendell Poons had been a wizard for more than a century. Besides, it was like breaking into your own house, the old familiar property that you'd lived in for years. You knew where the metaphorical window was that didn't shut properly. In short, Windlepoons went back to Windlepoons. Wizards don't believe in gods in the same way that most people don't find it necessary to believe in, say, tables. They know they're there, they know they're there for a purpose, they'd probably agree that they have a place in a well-organised universe, but they wouldn't see the point of believing, of going round saying, oh, great table without whom we are as naught. Anyway, either the gods are there, whether you believe it or not, or exist only as a function of the belief. So either way, you might as well ignore the whole business and, as it were, eat off your knees. Nevertheless, there is a small chapel off the university's great hall, because while the wizards stand right behind the philosophy as outlined above, you don't become a successful wizard by getting up God's noses, even if those noses only exist in an ethereal or metaphorical sense. Because while wizards don't believe in gods, they know for a fact that gods believe in gods. And in this chapel lay the body of Windle Poons. The university had instituted 24 hours lying in state ever since the embarrassing affair 30 years previously with the late Prissel merry prankster Titar. The body of Windlepoons opened its eyes. Two coins jingled onto the stone floor. The hands crossed over the chest, unclenched. Windle raised his head. Some idiot had stuck a lily on his stomach. His eyes swivelled sideways. There was a candle on either side of his head. He raised his head some more. There were two more candles down there, too. Thank goodness for old Titar, he thought. Otherwise I'd already be looking at the underside of a rather cheap pine lid. Funny thing, he thought. I'm thinking. Clearly. Wow. Windle lay back, feeling his spirit refeeling his body like gleaming molten metal running through a mould. White-hot thoughts, seared across the darkness of his brain, fired sluggish neurons into action. It was never like this when I was alive. But I'm not dead. Not alive and not dead. Sort of non-alive or undead. Oh, dear. He swung himself upright. Muscles that hadn't worked properly for 70 or 80 years jerked into overdrive. For the first time in his entire life, he corrected himself, better make that period of existence, Windlepoon's body was entirely under Windlepoon's control, and Windlepoon's spirit wasn't about to take any lip from a bunch of muscles. Now the body stood up. The knee joints resisted for a while, but they were no more able to withstand the onslaught of willpower than a sick mosquito can withstand a blowtorch. The door to the chapel was locked. However, Windle found that the merest pressure was enough to pull the lock out of the woodwork and leave fingerprints on the metal of the door handle. Oh, goodness, he said. He piloted himself out into the corridor. The distant clatter of cutlery and the buzz of voices suggested that one of the university's four daily meals was in progress. He wondered whether you were allowed to eat when you were dead. Probably not, he thought. 
and could he eat anyway? It wasn't that he was hungry, it was just that, well, he knew how to think, and walking and moving were just a matter of twitching some fairly obvious nerves. But how exactly did your stomach work? It began to dawn on Windle that the human body is not run by the brain, despite the brain's opinion on the matter. In fact, it's run by dozens of complex automatic systems, all whirring and clicking away with the kind of precision that isn't noticed until it breaks down. He surveyed himself from the control room of his skull. He looked at the silent chemical factory of his liver with the same sinking feeling as a canoe builder might survey the controls of a computerised supertanker. The mysteries of his kidneys awaited Windle's mastery of renal control. What, when you got right down to it, was a spleen? And how did you make it go? His heart sank, or rather, it didn't. Oh, gods, muttered Windle, and leaned against the wall. How did it work now? He prodded a few likely-looking nerves. Was it systolic, diastolic, systolic, diastolic? And then there were the lungs, too. Like a conjurer keeping eighteen plates spinning at the same time, like a man trying to program a video recorder from an instruction manual translated from Japanese into Dutch by a Korean rice husker, like, in fact, a man finding out what total self-control really means, Windle Poons lurched onwards. The wizards of Unseen University set great store by big, solid meals. A man couldn't be expected to get down to some serious wizarding, they held, without soup, fish, game, several huge plates of meat, a pie or two, something big and wobbly with cream on it, little savoury things on toast, fruit, nuts, and a brick-thick mint with the coffee. It gave him a lining to his stomach. It was also important that the meals were served at regular times. It was what gave the day shape, they said. Except for the bursar, of course. He didn't eat much, but lived on his nerves. He was certain he was anorectic, because every time he looked in the mirror he saw a fat man. It was the Arch-Chancellor standing behind him and shouting at him. And it was the bursar's unfortunate fate to be sitting opposite the doors when Windlepoon smashed them in because it was easier than fiddling with the handles. He bit through his wooden spoon. The wizards revolved on their benches to stare. Windlepoons swayed for a moment, assembling control of vocal cords, lips and tongue, and then said, I think I may be able to metabolise alcohol. The Arch-Chancellor was the first one to recover. Windle, he said, we, we, we thought you were dead. He had to admit that it wasn't a very good line. You didn't put people on a slab with candles and lilies all round them because you think they've got a bit of a headache and want a nice lie-down for half an hour. Windle took a few steps forward. The nearest wizards fell over themselves in an effort to get away. I am dead, you bloody young fool, he muttered. Think I go round looking like this all the time? Good grief. He glared at the assembled wizardry. Anyone here know what a spleen is supposed to do? He reached the table and managed to sit down. Probably something to do with the digestion, he said. Funny thing, you can go through your whole life with the bloody thing ticking away or whatever it does, gurgling or whatever, and you never know what the hell it's actually for. It's like when you're lying in bed of a night and you hear your stomach or something go pripple, ipple, going. It's just a gurgle to you, but who knows what marvellously complex chemical exchange processes are, are really going on. You're an undead? said the bursar, managing to get the words out at last. I didn't ask to be, 
said the late Windlepoons irritably, looking at the food and wondering how the blazes one went about turning it into Windlepoons. I only came back because there was nowhere else to go. Think I want to be here? But surely, said the Arch-Chancellor, didn't, um, you know, the fellow, the, the, the one with the skull and the scythe? Never saw him, said Windle shortly, inspecting the nearest dishes. Really takes it out of you, this undying? The wizards made frantic signals to one another over his head. He looked up and glared at them. And don't think I can't see all them frantic signals, he said. And he was amazed to realise that this was true. Eyes that had viewed the past sixty years through a pale, fuzzy veil had been bullied into operating like the finest optical machinery. In fact, two main bodies of thought were occupying the minds of the wizards of the Unseen University. What was being thought by most of the wizards was, This is terrible. Is it really old Windle in there? He was such a sweet old buffer, how can we get rid of it? How can we get rid of it? What was being thought by Windle Poons in the humming, flashing cockpit of his brain was, Well, it's true. There is life after death. And it's the same one. Just my luck. Well, he said, what are you going to do about it? It was five minutes later. Half a dozen of the most senior wizards scurried along the drafty corridor in the wake of the Arch-Chancellor, whose robes billowed out behind him. The conversation went like this. It's got to be Windle. It even talks like him. It's not old Windle. Old Windle was a lot older. Older? Older than dead? He said he wants his old bedroom back, and I don't see why I should have to move out. Did you see his eyes? Like gimlets. Eh? Eh? What? What do you mean? You mean like the dwarf who runs the delicatessen on Cable Street? I mean like they bore into you. It's got a lovely view in the gardens, and I've had all my stuff moved in, and it's not fair. Has this ever happened before? Well, there was old T-Tar. Yes, but... He never actually died. He just used to put green paint on his face and push the lid off the coffin and shout, Surprise, surprise. We've never had a zombie here. He's a zombie? I think so. Does that mean he'll be playing kettle drums and doing that bimbo dancing all night, then? Is that what they do? Old Windle? Doesn't sound like his cup of tea. He never liked dancing much when he was alive. Anyway, you can't trust those voodoo gods. Never trust a god who grins all the time and wears a top hat. That's my motto. I'm damned if I'm going to give up that bedroom to a zombie after waiting years for it. Is it? That's a funny motto. Windle Poons strolled around the inside of his own head again. Strange thing, this. Now he was dead, or not living anymore, or whatever he was, his mind felt clearer than it had ever done. And control seemed to be getting easier, too. He hardly had to bother about the whole respiratory thing. The spleen seemed to be working after a fashion. The senses were operating at full speed. The digestive system was still a bit of a mystery, though. He looked at himself in a silver plate. He still looked dead. Pale face, red under the eyes, a dead body. Operating, but still basically dead. Was that fair? Was that justice? Was that a proper reward for being a firm believer in reincarnation for almost 130 years? You come back as a corpse? No wonder the undead were traditionally considered to be very angry. Something wonderful, if you took the long view, was about to happen. If you took the short or medium view, something horrible was about to happen. It's like the difference between seeing a beautiful new star in the winter sky and actually being close to the supernova. It's the difference between 
the beauty of morning dew on a cobweb, and actually being a fly. It was something that wouldn't normally have happened for thousands of years. It was about to happen now. It was about to happen at the back of a disused cupboard in a tumble-down cellar in the shades, the oldest and most disreputable part of Ankh Morpork. Plop. It was a sound as soft as the first drop of rain on a century of dust. Maybe we could get a black cat to walk across his coffin. He hasn't got a coffin, wailed the bursar, whose grip on sanity was always slightly tentative. OK, so we, we buy him a nice new coffin, and then we get a black cat to walk across it. No, that's stupid. We've got to make him pass water. What? Pass water? Undeads can't do it. The wizards, who had crowded into the Arch-Chancellor's study, gave this statement their full fascinated attention. Are you sure? said the dean. Well known fact, said the lecturer in recent runes flatly. He used to pass water all the time when he was alive, said the dean doubtfully. Not when he's dead, though. Yeah, makes sense. Running water, said the lecturer in recent runes suddenly. It's running water. Sorry, they can't cross over it. Well, I can't cross running water either said the dean. Undead! Undead! The bursar was becoming a little unglued. Oh, stop teasing him, said the lecturer, patting the trembling man on the back. Well, I can't, said the dean. I sink. Undead can't cross running water even on a bridge. And is he the only one, hmm? Are we going to have a plague of them, eh? said the lecturer. The arch-chancellor drummed his fingers on his desk. Dead people walking around is unhygienic, he said. This silenced them. No one had ever looked at it that way, but Mustrum Ridcully was just the sort of man who would. Mustrum Ridcully was, depending on your point of view, either the worst or the best Arch-Chancellor that Unseen University had had for a hundred years. There was too much of him, for one thing. It wasn't that he was particularly big, it was just that he had the kind of huge personality that fits any available space. He'd get roaring drunk at supper, and that was fine and acceptable wizardly behaviour, but then he'd go back to his room and play darts all night and leave at five in the morning to go duck hunting. He shouted at people, he tried to jolly them along, and he hardly ever wore proper robes. He'd persuaded Mrs Whitlow, the university's dreaded housekeeper, to make him a sort of baggy trouser suit in garish blue and red. Twice a day the wizards stood in bemusement and watched him jog purposefully around the university buildings, his pointy wizarding hat tied firmly on his head with string. He'd shout cheerfully up at them, because fundamental to the makeup of people like Mustrum Ridcully is an iron belief that everyone else would like it too, if only they tried it. Maybe he'll die, they told one another hopefully, as they watched him try to break the crust on the River Ankh for an early morning dip. All this healthy exercise can't be good for him. Stories trickled back into the university. The Arch-Chancellor had gone two rounds bare-fisted with detritus, the huge odd job troll at the mended drum. The Arch-Chancellor had arm-wrestled with the librarian for a bet, and although, of course, he hadn't won, still had his arm afterwards. The Arch-Chancellor wanted the university to form its own football team for the big city game on Hogswatch Day. Intellectually, Ridcully maintained his position for two reasons. One was that he never, ever changed his mind about anything. The other was that it took him several minutes to understand any new idea put to him, and this is a very valuable trait in a leader, because anything anyone is still trying to explain to you after two minutes is probably important, 
and anything they give up after a mere minute or so is almost certainly something they shouldn't have been bothering you with in the first place. There seemed to be more mustrum ridcully than one body could reasonably contain. Plop, plop. In the dark cupboard in the cellar, a whole shelf was already full. There was exactly as much Windle Poons as one body could contain, and he steered it carefully along the corridors. I never expected this, he thought. I don't deserve this. There's been a mistake somewhere. He felt a cool breeze on his face and realised he'd tottered out into the open air. Ahead of him were the university's gates locked shut. Suddenly, Windle Poons felt acutely claustrophobic. He'd waited years to die, and now he had. And here he was, stuck in this, this mausoleum with a lot of daft old men, where he'd have to spend the rest of his life being dead. Well, the first thing to do was to get out and make a proper end to himself. Evening, Mr Poons. He turned around very slowly and saw the small figure of Modo, the university's dwarf gardener, who was sitting in the twilight smoking his pipe. Oh, hello, Modo. I heard you was took dead, Mr Poons. Uh, yes, I was. See you got over it, then. Poons nodded and looked dismally around the walls. The university gates were always locked at sunset every evening, obliging students and staff to climb over the walls. He doubted very much that he'd be able to manage that. He clenched and unclenched his hands. Oh, well. Is there another gateway around here, Modo? He said. No, Mr Poons. Well, where shall we have one? Sorry, Mr Poons? There was the sound of tortured masonry, followed by a vaguely Poons-shaped hole in the wall. Windle's hand reached back in and picked up his hat. Modo relit his pipe. You see a lot of interesting things in this job, he thought. In an alley, temporarily out of sight of passers-by, someone called Reg Shoe, who was dead, looked both ways, took a brush and a paint tin out of his pocket, and painted on the wall the words, Dead, yes, gone, no, and ran away, or at least lurched off at high speed. The Arch-Chancellor opened a window onto the night. Uh, listen, he said. The wizards listened. A dog barked. Somewhere a thief whistled and was answered from a neighbouring rooftop. In the distance a couple were having the kind of quarrel that causes most of the surrounding streets to open their windows and listen and make notes. But these were only major themes against the continuous hum and buzz of the city. Ankh Morpork purred through the night, en route for the dawn, like a huge living creature, although, of course... This was only a metaphor. Well, said the senior wrangler, I can't hear anything special. That's what I mean. Dozens of people die in Ankh-Morpork every day. If they'd all started coming back like poor old Windle, don't you think we'd know about it? The place would be an uproar. More uproar than usual, I mean. There's always a few undead around, said the dean, doubtfully. Vampires and zombies and banshees and so on. Yes, but they're more naturally undead, said the Arch-Chancellor. They know how to carry it off. They're born to it. You can't be born to be undead, the senior wrangler pointed out. The post of senior wrangler was an unusual one, as was the name itself. In some centres of learning, the senior wrangler is a leading philosopher. In others, he's merely someone who looks after horses. The senior wrangler at Unseen University was a philosopher who looked like a horse, thus neatly encapsulating all definitions.
I mean, it's traditional, the Arch-Chancellor snapped. There were some very respectable vampires where I grew up. They'd been in their family for centuries. Yes, but they drink blood, said the senior wrangler. That doesn't sound very respectable to me. I read that they don't actually need the actual blood, said the dean, anxious to assist. They just need something that's in blood. Hemogoblins, I think it's called. The other wizards looked at him. The dean shrugged. Search me, he said. Hemogoblins, that's what it said. It's all to do with people having iron in their blood. I'm damn sure I've got no iron goblins in my blood, said the senior wrangler. At least they're better than zombies, said the dean. A much better class of people. Vampires don't go shuffling around the whole time. People can be turned into zombies, you know, said the lecturer in recent runes and conversational tones. You don't even need magic, just the liver of a certain rare fish and the extract of a particular kind of root. One spoonful and when you wake up you're a zombie. What type of fish, said the senior wrangler. How should I know? How should anyone know then, said the senior wrangler nastily. Did someone wake up one morning and say, hey, here's an idea, I'll just turn someone into a zombie. All I'll need is some rare fish liver and a piece of root. It's just a matter of finding the right one. You can see the queue outside the hut, can't you? Number 94, red stripe fish liver and maniac root. Didn't work. Number 95, spike fish liver and dum-dum root. Didn't work. Number 96... What are you talking about? The Arch-Chancellor demanded. I was simply pointing out the intrinsic unlikelihood. Shut up, said the Arch-Chancellor, matter-of-factly. Seems to me... Seems to me... Look, death must be going on, right? Death has to happen. That's what being alive is all about. You're alive and, 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 and then you're dead. It can't just stop happening. But he didn't turn up for Windle, the dean pointed out. It goes on all the time, said Ridcully, ignoring him. All sorts of things die all the time, even vegetables. But I don't think death ever came for a potato, said the dean, doubtfully. Death comes for everything, said the Arch-Chancellor firmly. The wizards nodded sagely. After a while, the senior wrangler said, Do you know, I read the other day that every atom in your body is changed every seven years. New ones keep getting attached and old ones keep on dropping off. It goes on all the time. Marvellous, really. The senior wrangler could do to a conversation what it takes quite thick treacle to do to the pedals of a precision watch. Yes? What happens to the old ones? said Ridcully, interested despite himself. Dunno. They just float around in the air, I suppose, until they get attached to someone else. The Arch-Chancellor looked affronted. What, even wizards? Oh yes, everyone. It's part of the miracle of existence. Is it? Sounds like bad hygiene to me, said the Arch-Chancellor. I suppose there's no way of um, stopping it. I shouldn't think so, said the senior wrangler doubtfully. I don't think you're supposed to stop miracles of existence. But that means everything is made up of everything else, said Ridcully. Yes, isn't it amazing? It's disgusting, is what it is, said Ridcully shortly. Anyway, the, the point I'm making, the point I'm making, he paused, trying to remember, you can't just abolish death. That's the point. Death can't die. That's like asking a scorpion to sting itself. End of CD 1